0: Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, thank you that the proclamation of the gospel is not just the proclamation about what you have done in the person of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, but what you are doing and what you will do. You are coming again, and it is the cry of your church. Come. Thou long-expected Jesus. Whatever hesitations we have inside of us that hinder us from being able to say that full-throatedly, get rid of them now. Help us to boldly and confidently say, Come. We ask as we look at your word tonight that you would come by your Spirit. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So, our passage tonight, uh, we are we are going over. We're kind of taking a it's a little series we're doing on some of the attributes of God, and we're just doing this to, as we said last week, make sure that our thinking is as right as possible about God. Because to the degree that our thinking isn't accurate, it will impact our everyday life, and it will impact our ability to relate with God. Not that he would abandon us for having a wrong thought, but it could certainly give us the wrong impression of who he is. So it's important that we think rightly about him. Tonight we're talking about his holiness, and there is no passage I can think of that accentuates God's holiness more than Isaiah chapter 6. It's in your bulletin. You can follow along if you want. It reads like this. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people ends the reading of God's Word. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't like confrontation. Not one little bit. Not at all. And actually, I think if you actually really like confrontation, you probably, probably have some issues. Like, confrontation is... It's difficult. It's hard. I remember one of the first times I had to confront somebody about a spiritual issue at the church. I wasn't a pastor then, but I was leading a young adult group, and it was, it, it was growing. I mean, there was new people coming in. There was non-Christians being converted, and one of our new converts in this group had been, well, I guess taken under the wing of one of what we thought was uh, our more mature members, were all people in their late teens and early twenties. It was about a size of about 40 or sometimes 50 people in this group. It was a big group. And uh, and we were happy to see that this, this new convert had been kind of taken under this woman's wing. And then I found out just somehow, not exactly, I don't remember exactly how, that this woman and this new convert had uh, decided to go out one night and smoke weed together. Well, you can't, you can't have, you can't have that without it being dealt with. You can't have your leaders, so to speak, taking out your new converts to smoke weed. That isn't a good pattern of discipleship. And so I thought about what I would do. What do you do? I mean, I didn't want to say anything. I didn't want to be awkward. I didn't want it to be difficult. I didn't want to deal with the confrontation. I thought about it for a couple days, and the more I thought about it, the more I felt ate up inside, and I knew I had to do something, and so I prayed much and made the call, and I remember her response when I confronted her about this issue. It was complete and utter silence. It was almost worse having nothing but silence. Have you ever been confronted with something you've done wrong and just knew you had nothing to say in your defense? You're just caught. You're just, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. You're done for. King Uzziah was generally a good king over Judah. He was. He had ruled for 52 years. It's a long time. I mean, we think four years is a long time with some of our presidents. Uh, 52 years as king. And he uh, hadn't fallen victim to the kind of corruption that so many of the the other kings of Judah and Israel had before. He had won many battles and built up the city of Jerusalem, though though he was far from perfect, as scripture also records. But now he's dead. And what happens in a kingdom, in a land, in a nation where somebody who's ruled over you for 52 years suddenly dies, it it throws your nation into shock. Just like if a president were to die while in office. The country is in a state of confusion and disarray for a bit. So Isaiah who happens to be a man of the nobility, we are told, heads up to the temple, where all the business is done, probably to pray and worship, to seek God's face about the nation's future. That's probably what's going on here. It's why it mentions the year that King Uzziah died. What will they do? Where will they go? And there he is confronted by a holy God. So what happens when humanity is confronted with a holy God. Well, the first thing we see is we become very submissive very quickly. Isaiah reports in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now in your Bibles, you may have noticed from time to time uh, that the word Lord is spelled differently depending on the context sometimes the word Lord is spelled in all caps sometimes it's lORD all caps and sometimes it isn't in a case you ever wonder why that is um, the Bible uh, basically is trying to tell us something about God in that way the translators are trying to tell us something when you see all caps that is his name it's a trying to translate the name Yahweh that we find in Exodus chapter 2 when God just tells Moses his name is that name. So whenever you see all caps, it's essentially that. It's his name. But also in the Bible, the term Lord is used without all caps, and that is used to express not a name but a title about God. It's usually describing something about him. And the name for Lord, or the word Lord, in our context here in verse 1, is actually the word Adonai. And that means sovereign. Sovereign Lord. So what Isaiah is being confronted with, remember, a king has just died. What is God presenting himself as to Isaiah? A sovereign king. The sovereign one who rules over all. You see the contrast there. They've lost their earthly king, but Isaiah is being confronted by the nation's true king. And when people are confronted with the true king, it becomes very quick becomes very clear very quickly who's in charge. As a matter of fact, let me just say this, I mean, to bring it down very practically, the more we're focused on our true sovereign king, the less we will be constantly in a fit of anxiety or stress about our temporal kings here and our temporal queens here. It doesn't mean that we are just going to sit back apathetically and not care But it just gives us perspective, that no matter what happens with our temporal authorities here, with our governments here, no matter how bad or good it may seem at any given time, there's always a recognition that there is one ruling over all of them that we are called to submit to. Sometimes that gets hard to remember, especially in our day when we're just constantly just splattered with news of all the scandal and all the difficulty and all the challenge that comes with governing authorities. (laughs) It's all sensationalized, but the first thing Isaiah is confronted with is, no, 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 no. Whatever happened with the Uzziah, whatever happens with Donald Trump or with Barack Obama or with Hillary Clinton or whoever, whatever happens there, ultimately, look past that. We look back, we look past that to a sovereign, true king who rules over us. And yet he is not the only one confronted by the king. We also know that Isaiah sees seraphim there surrounding the throne of God. Now, in the entire Bible, we never hear the term seraphim anywhere else to describe celestial beings except in this passage. And what are they doing? Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, all day long, all the time, constantly, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of of his glory. The point is, is that the seraphim's whole purpose for existence is to unceasingly, unendingly give praise to this king. Holy, holy, holy. In Hebrew, if you wanted to express that something was really important, you said the word twice. You'll notice this when Jesus is speaking oftentimes in the Gospels. He'll say, truly, truly, I say to you. And that would be a way for his listeners to know, like, ooh, it's pretty serious. Better make sure I write this down, jot this down somewhere. In my mind, this is really serious. Truly, truly. But if you wanted to super-emphasize something, you said it three times. holy. Holy. The three times holy also brings to mind, of course, the triune nature of God, the Father, the Holy Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what are they? What are God's worshipers really saying when they say that he's holy? Well, in one sense, it's pretty simple. To be holy is just, it literally was used to describe at times uh, cutting off cloth. And the cut off piece of cloth would be Something that was referred to as set apart or holy, a cut apart, a cut above. The point is, is that God is high and lofty, far above us. He is perfection, we are not. He is separate from his creation. He is creator, we are creation. As 1 Timothy 6.16 says, the one that we just read earlier, he alone has immortality, who dwells in an approachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and an eternal dominion. Amen. But here's the problem. Our natures feel very threatened by the holy. We don't like someone having the authority to tell us what to do, when to worship, who to worship, how to worship, how to live. Something about us says, "Who do you think you are to tell me how to live my life?" I'm free. And so what we do, naturally, as human beings, we try to make God accessible in our own ways. We might try and make him more our, like our buddy, or we may use his name flippantly. And our attempts to bring God down to our level in a way he has not authorized can be destructive. The Old Testament has a number of stories in which people had tried to make God accessible in a way that he did not allow, say the sons of Aaron, for example, look it up sometime, I won't go over it, that try to make God more accessible, and it ends up, hurting them very badly, killing them even. And all that said, God has come down and will receive worship from us, but only through the way, the truth, and the life he's authorized, and that is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, whether you're aware of it or not, the whole earth is full of God's glory and is an evidence of our sin, that we are so blinded to that fact, that we have gotten so used to the way things are that we cannot appreciate the glory that is around us at any given moment. And so what happens when people are actually confronted with God in His holiness is they become undone. That's the word that Isaiah uses. We see this over and over and over again when people come into contact with the holiness of God. Anyone called to be a prophet in the Old Testament, when God comes near them, what do they do? They bow down on their face before him. What did Peter do in the passage that Cat that, uh, read from Luke? He didn't say, this is an amazing catch of fish. Thank you so much. He bowed down and said, depart from me for I am a <laughs> sinful man when confronted with the power and holiness of Jesus Christ. The seraphim have six wings, two to fly, but then four others. What for? To cover their feet. Why? Remember when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, what did he tell him to do? He said, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground you are standing on. In the presence of the holy sovereign God, they needed to acknowledge his glory through the covering of their creaturely dirty feet. Why the the two for their eyes, to cover their eyes? Again, look at the the story of Moses. There's this interesting story in Exodus 33 where Moses asks God to see him face to face. He says, I want to see you face to face. I want to see you as you are. And God says, well, here's the facts. If you did see me face to face, it would kill you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in a cleft of the rock. And I'm just going to let you see the very backside of me as I pass by in my glory. And that's enough. That's exactly what he did. And just seeing the sort of tail end of God, Moses' face radiated so much that he freaked everybody out when he got back to the camp of Israel. The story is found in Exodus 33. So much so that he actually had to wear a veil. Look at what happens in Isaiah's vision. Buildings quake, smoke fills the place most interesting response is Isaiah's woe is me that phrase woe is me is Isaiah saying with the most with the deepest possible fear one can imagine I am a dead man that's what that phrase meant I am cursed now what on earth could ever cause someone to say that Because in light of God's holiness, he sees for the first time his sin for what it is. And notice, it's the very thing that he thinks would be used for God's glory. His lips. The very thing that he thinks, he probably thinks makes him most righteous in the sight of God is the thing he realizes he needs to repent for the most. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. He says, I am undone. I am coming apart at the seams. Um, I think I told you before I'm a, well I was I mean I I haven't listened to a lot of their newer stuff but I was a pretty big Weezer fan when I was younger although they just did a remake of Toto's Africa that is great, so you know for what it's worth but uh, their first song, their first single, their first hit was instantly got me it was one of my favorite songs The song called Undone same word that Isaiah uses here now, if you saw the video for the song, you would sort of think that it really didn't have any serious text at all or serious subtext. I mean, it really is kind of ridiculous. The video is a big joke and there's like dogs running around and it's all pretty silly. But I remember showing this song to my pastor at the time. and I was like, dude, this band sounds amazing. I'm telling you, it's awesome. And, um, and he listened to it, not seeing the video, just was listening to the lyrics. And he said, wow. That guy's got a lot of pain. And I was like, what? you know, teenager, I wasn't paying attention to the lyrics at all. What are you talking about? And then I started listening to it for real. In the words, if you want to destroy my sweater, hold this thread as I walk away, as I walk away, watch me unravel. I'll soon be naked, lying on the floor. I've come undone. The idea is that somebody is exposing him. Somebody is exposing and it's terrifying to him to be exposed. He's going to be lying there writhing on the floor and everyone's going to see his imperfections and his vulnerabilities. He's saying, I'm entirely vulnerable before you. That's what Isaiah is saying to God. I'm entirely vulnerable. There's nothing I can hide from you. It's like the great scene in Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors when the main character absolutely feeling guilty and afraid for what he's done wrong has a dream where this gigantic eyeball is coming out of the sky chasing him down. Can't hide. Francis Schaeffer would refer to this as taking the roof off. The idea is a person has been living under a certain set of values and assumptions about the way the world is to make it all sort of make sense. They've been living under some sort of narrative. They've told themselves, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all going to be fine. And then suddenly the roof is taken off and they're exposed and they realize that they're in a world full of giants and they can be crushed at any time. There's, no, there's nowhere to escape, there's nowhere to go. They're like an ant on the paw of a hand. And it is then... That Isaiah sees his problem for what it truly is. This one who would be a prophet of of God, a man whose chief gifting was to use his mouth, says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. You want to know the mark of truly being undone by God's holiness. It's not just repenting of the things that you know you've done wrong. Or your sin, but it's even knowing that your best works, your best righteousness, needs to be repented of as well. That even our best works are not good enough to stand before a holy God. And so Isaiah just—he's—he's con- he's confessing this. What he's doing, what we did at the beginning of the service, without reservations, he just flings himself onto the mercy of God. There's nowhere else to go. And that's when we see the fourth thing that happens when confronted by a holy God and we're undone. We're atoned for. Isaiah is ready to die, completely undone, startled and terrified by the presence of holiness. And at that moment, at that moment, God sends someone, quote, to take away the guilt and atone. Quote, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You see, just as God sent the seraph to take away Isaiah's guilt and atone for his sins, that is what he has done for the entire world through Jesus Christ. God's consuming fire, instead of being poured out on us for all of the ways that we have messed up, is poured out on the cross so that you can indeed stand before him even one day, yes, one day, face to face. Because through Christ's clean lips that only spoke the Father's will, he atoned for Isaiah's sins and for your sins, for Isaiah's unclean lips and my unclean lips. He has made it possible for God to reach out to the most scandalous sinner in cleansing love rather than holy tears. So that now God doesn't become your sovereign king that you fear, but the Father that you embrace. This pattern is all throughout Scripture. God shows up. Man becomes unaware of their sin. Cries out for mercy and God atones for them. This is what God does. This is who God is. On the day of Pentecost, that's what happened. In Luke 5 with Peter, that's what happened. What does Jesus say after he says, Depart from me. I'm too sinful. Jesus says, Do not be afraid. And then we're sent out. The very next verse after this. After after we're atoned for... Then God says, all right, now no, I've cleaned you up. Now I can use you. Now I can use you. So Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, send me. I'm ready to go. When Isaiah's sin has been atoned for, then the Holy God calls out that he needs a messenger. Who will go for us? And we say, yeah, send me. I want to deliver what you gave to me to the world. So that's what happens when we're confronted by a holy God. That's what what happens tonight when we stand here worshiping this holy God. Each and every week, there's a sense in which this is reenacted for us. We come before God in and of ourselves, not having anything to offer. And he, in his mercy, comes down again to us, atoning for us, saying, I am here for you. Jesus Christ has accomplished it all for you now go and be used in my service for your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that, again, if it was was my lips, if I knew that I was not being interceded for right now by Jesus Christ, if I knew that he wasn't standing in the gap between between us, then I wouldn't be speaking to you because I'd have no right. But that is not the case for us right now. That is not the case for anybody who trusts in Jesus. The fact is we come boldly to a throne of grace. And we rest in that tonight, worshiping you for your holiness, your set-apartness, and asking you to make us more holy ourselves.